I really want to talk a little bit about the three mind training aspects of the Eightfold Path, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. I, think I want to talk about them as right effort, right concentration, right mindfulness, and come out with, do I want to do it that way? We'll see. We'll do a little mini overview of them um, to begin with. Right effort, clearly, are, there are four right efforts. It's the effort to notice in the mind the presence of um, uh, wholesome mind states and cultivate them more. To notice in the mind the absence of wholesome mind states and try to put them in. To notice in the mind the presence of unwholesome, unwholesome mind states he robbed me, he deceived me, he told me this, he did that. <coughs> Unwholesome mind states, mind states of irritation or ill will, mind states of I need to have that, I have to get it, how am I going to get that? <coughs> mind states of self-preoccupied greed and aversion. Noticing in the mind the presence of those mind states and putting them out and noticing the absence of them and keeping them out. That's actually what the right effort is about. When I first heard right effort, it was like, you know, mega big effort, but it's not that. That's like apply energy to your practice. This is really the effort of discerning what is there. Is it wholesome or not? Is it good for me or not? And not dwelling on it. If it's not good for you, put it aside. There's a sutta in which the Buddha says, when the mind is filled, let me see if I remember all five, there are five things to do when the mind is filled with an unwholesome mind state. Let's say a mind state of uh, anger, someone's done you wrong, or a mind state of uh, unputdownable lust, something has captured your mind and you can't, I can't rest until I have that. The Buddha, the Buddha in, the in the Majjhima Nikaya, it doesn't say unwholesome, it says evil. When he, as, uh, you know, the, we tend to leave out the, I think it says evil and unwholesome, but we, we leave out the evil usually, it shouldn't be too rough. But, and I, everybody knows fundamentally. It's like when we teach metta now, we talk, we, we talk about the difficult person, and in the scriptures it says the enemy, and everybody knows actually it's the enemy. And we're like using a euphemism because we are politically correct and we don't want to say anything too jarring, but in the mind, the mind is not so, it really knows anyway. So when, the, when an unwholesome mind state takes over the mind, and so the Buddha said you could do five things. The first thing you could do is you could put in an, an, a wholesome mind state. You could apply some wholesome mind state to it, like calm. Maybe you could cause yourself to uh, take some long, deep breaths and calm yourself down. Maybe you could concentrate, and the concentration itself would bring up a certain delight in the mind, a certain rapture. Uh, the concentration would keep your attention on the object of the concentration, like the breath, and away from the unwholesome uh, object, whatever it was, which might then fall away. So you could put in something wholesome instead. Said you could um, think to yourself about, you could bring to mind the danger 
of uh, continuing with that unwholesome mind state, how not good it is for you. you really startle yourself. You say, do I want to go around polluting my mind with this unskillful thought and hurting myself and having this become a habit? This isn't good for me. Like if you find yourself in a, in a smoke-filled room, you say, hey, I don't want to be in this room. This is no good for me. I'm going out of here. So you could, uh, you could put in a wholesome mind state. You could think about how not good for you it is to have that mind state and then move away from it. You could um, abandon it. And they said, you know, just let it go. So notice how you've grabbed onto it. And you could just abandon it, let it go, walk away from it. Just don't have anything to do with it. That's the third. The fourth is that you could be more, you could have a more refined view of it. You could say, okay, this is here again. I think to myself in terms of uh, um, examples of that, suppose the same thought has come in my mind and it's some thought about how I think I was done wrong. Let's just take that example. I could do a thought about how I have to have that. Maybe I'll do the have to have it thought. I can't rest until I have that. It's a lust thought. And it's unpleasant because I'm not going to get it, and I can't get it, and it's not right to get it, it's not available, whatever. And I feel such a yearning and so despair and that I could think to myself, what's really under this thought? What's fueling it? Why do I want this so badly? What else is there? Take a breath and see what else is there. What else is there? It's the most psychological sounding of those five responses to unwholesome. <coughs> What's under it? What's under it? That maybe if I actually could find out what was the root cause of that. You know, I'm not sure that it would take it away, but maybe it would take some of the energy away from it. You know, in, in, in life, you know, when we've been uh, wounded in some significant way, either with not getting something that we should have had when we were young, or being wounded in some hurtful, abusive way when we were young. I don't think, I've come to think that, I don't, that those wounds don't go away. I think they get um, soothed a little bit, and they get understood a little bit, and uh, they don't have such a frightening effect on the mind. The mind is clearer about this happened, but it's not happening now. So it, it doesn't have to get frightened by remembering that all over again. It doesn't have to re-traumatize itself with the event. It can just say, you know, that was a really bad thing that happened. Not happening now. Somebody on this retreat that just happened, uh, that three-day retreat that was over the weekend, told a story of having been part of a rescue squad and uh, in a certain circumstance and uh, that one of the people died that they were attempting to rescue. It was actually a person that he knew. And uh, how terrible it was for him to be attendant on that. And it's a couple of years ago. And he said, you know, I know that it's not my fault. And I know that I did the best that I could. And I know that it was out of my hands. He said, but that thought keeps circling around and circling around and circling around. 
He said, but each time it circles around that I can hold it in a little bit uh, more balanced way. It has less hold on my mind. I'm not as restartled by it. And I'm hopeful that it'll get less, but I still feel terribly sad about the fact that my friend died. And sad about the fact that I couldn't do anything about it. I think sadness doesn't go away. I think what it becomes is uh, the sense of it becomes not continuous. When you think of something, if a sad thing happens to you, if we asked, if we if we turn to our neighbors here, we won't do it, but if everybody turned to the neighbor and said, you know, what was the saddest thing that ever happened to you? I won't ask you to do it, because this is a very intimate thing to tell somebody. But if we did it, and then we we thought about it, and say, am I sad every moment about this? No. You know, there are times that I'm not thinking about it. <coughs> the, the loss of anybody, the death of anybody that's significant to us, remains sad. We should have been other. But it doesn't remain permanently, you know, continuously sad. When you think about it, you say, oh, wish that hadn't happened. So you get a space around it. It becomes not the whole of the mind, but what comes up every once in a while, with sadness. So the fifth is you could, you could understand this present difficult state in a context, in, in a wider context, in a more refined. So he said, uh, the Buddha said, replace it with a more wholesome, with a wholesome state. Put in a wholesome, apply a wholesome state, <coughs> reflect on the dangers of keeping the state. That's actually so interesting to me because when my mind becomes filled, especially with an aversion, so-and-so did this to me, and they shouldn't have, and I'm right, and they're wrong, and I have righteous indignation. It's so hard for me to put it down. Uh, <coughs> and I reflect on this, it's dangerous for me. It's not even dangerous in the long run, it's dangerous in the short run, it's dangerous right now, because it's really making me upset. But there's something so insidious about that glue of that, so I noticed it this morning because something came into my mind that it was carrying on for a while. And I said, what are you doing? Put that down. <laughs> so that's the third, abandoning. Uh, the third is abandoning. The fourth is seeing in a more refined way. And the fifth is great. I don't do this as well as my friend James, who usually reads this out of the text at a mindfulness retreat. The fifth, he said, if unho- the Buddha said, if unwholesome evil states uh, continue, the meditator should clench his teeth together, press his tongue against the roof of his mouth, and crush the thoughts with his mind. It's so un... I, I, seriously. We have a Majima out there? Go get, I mean, it's fun. Go get a Majima, just to show you that I'm not making this up. Um, so there are, so that's a, and I, I, I thought about it over the weekend while I was teaching again, that that's a really clear exposition of right effort where it says, put them out of your mind. He also gave instructions, do it this way, do it A, B, C, D, if they don't work, do E. Uh, and really, I ask people in the group, I'll ask you, have you ever said to yourself, I'm just not doing this. Have you, I mean, I don't know about cringe the teeth together, but have you done that? Yeah? Yeah? Because it's so unpleasant when that 
mood or that thought comes back again. And it's particularly unpleasant, I think, if I know, and this is part of uh, what we talked about last week, about right understanding, if I know in my heart of hearts that peace is possible. If I didn't know that, if I thought that we are the victims, each of us, of passing moods and mind states, I'd just say, well, you know, too bad I'm all of a sudden, you know, it's like, we are all victims of, of the flu. If it comes by, we don't say, ah, oh, it could have been other. It is another, you know, if it's flu season, you get the flu. You don't like it, but you sweat it out. But you don't think to yourself, I'm clenching my teeth together and this flu is going away. But here it is, comes in, it's a flu of the mind. And here's the Buddha saying, this flu, you don't have to have. What we, uh, Julian, Julian. You know, I'm trying to find unwholesome states and one thing of course, you know, <coughs> I don't know, evil may be better because what happens if you have severe chronic pain? Is that how unwholesome to think about it? Severe chronic pain. I think the Buddha was not talking about that as an unwholesome state. The unwholesome states are clearly greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, Maybe the unwholesome state that would be connected with chronic pain would be a delusive state that keeps up the idea, uh, I shouldn't have this pain. That would be, you know. Yeah, accepting the pain is a much more specific thing. Yeah, because delusive is I shouldn't have it. I mean, have it because you have it. Um, um, so there's something non-delusive about saying this is the way it is. It's, it's like this. Um, that's an important point. I have to think about that. Because normally when I give examples, I'm thinking of greed, lust, and aversion, because that's more... Um, thank you very much. Lust and aversion, because they're more obvious. But that's really true. Take a, one minute. Talk to the person next to you about... What would be another kind of delusive? Is it only not affect, not accepting this couldn't be otherwise? What could be another delusive state? Um, I seriously want you to do it because I want to find this thing. <laughs> One, two, three, do it. Got it.
So did you figure out another delusive state? What? That the pain is personal. Huh? That the pain is personal, that it's human pain. Uh-huh. It's blood. Yeah, that this, is, that this is my personal pain. And I, I, someone once said to me uh, in that vein that uh, when, I am, <coughs> when I am experiencing pain about something, I am experiencing my personal corner of the universal pain it's like the great blanket of human life, great blanket of universal uh, <coughs> life that, uh, that we each of us are holding up our particular point of. So we are touching this blanket of pain that's part of human experience at wherever we're touching it and whatever is our particular story. So that when I was growing up, uh, and there were crime stories on the radio at the end, they would always say, uh, all of the facts of this crime story are true. The names have been changed to protect <laughs> the innocent. So everybody has a, a crime story of pain in them. They, they are hurt by this and that and the other. But it's all different. Mine is this, yours is this, this is this, this is this. What else did you discover? Guilt. 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 Guilt is a very, I forget your name, you just told me. Aneta. Hmm? Aneta, and you just told me last week, sorry about that, Aneta. Guilt is a very important one to think about because there are some times that we do things that we feel not, we feel guilty about afterwards, and that we should actually. And this, this is maybe a bad thing to say, but if I am not paying attention and I do something that causes pain somewhere, I do feel guilt. And if I linger in the guilt, I am being delusive. If I linger in the guilt, if I were clear, not delusive, I would think to myself, ah, alas, I did cause pain, that's the truth. I did it, I wasn't paying attention. I was doing the best I could at that moment. We always are. If I could have paid it, if I would have been paying attention, I wouldn't have done it, but I did do it. Now what I feel is remorse, which is I'm really determined not to do that again. And remorse is quite a freeing and awakening thing. Because if I have genuine remorse, if I'm genuinely contrite, then I am determined not to do that again. May I not fall asleep and make that same mistake again. So it's actually quite an awakening thing. I'm not deluded if I am genuinely contrite. When I figure out something that I have been complicit in, and it wasn't a cool thing, and oh, the moment of figuring it out, you feel really bad. But the, right after that, I feel quite uplifted. I might, I, I might think to myself, now I have to go find a telephone and call up and fix what I did, or you know, something with colleagues, something in a meeting, something or other. But I feel better even before I make the phone call. 
And that is so instructive to me, to be liberated from the confusion of guilt into the clarity of, uh, really the clarity of contrition and remorse and determination to do it differently is huge. Thank you very much. This is a great, I mean, you are teaching me a lot. What else is the delusive them? Forget about greed and hatred, delusion, delusion. Kevin. Seeing others, through, we, we do not see others but through the flaws of our own ego. That was Tennessee Williams who said that. Sounds like the Buddha, doesn't it? <laughs> I like that so much. Thank you very much. We do not see others but through the flaws of our own ego, which, if we were practicing mindfulness, we would see more clearly. The flaws of my own ego <sighs> are less, I think, than what they used to be. Or, and or, I am more alert to them, so they are less likely to color the lenses through which I see people. From starting to not like somebody because they're such an opinionated show-off, I have to worry a little bit about <laughs> that this might be the flaw of my own ego that I am seeing them through, because I'm a little opinionated and a little bit bossy. Oh, we have to laugh so loud. <laughs> so, anybody else has a good idea that a lot of it is mystery. I forget, Robert? John. John, John. John is saying that, um, forgetting that um, a lot of this is mystery, how it happens and why it happens, and, um, and thinking that somehow we could discern or figure out everything about everything. The Buddha said, um, that uh, that kind of uh, that kind of mind that would be able to know the causes and the reasons for everything, he said, if you contemplate it, that's one of the six imponderables. You know, you can't think about why is everything the way it is. It's fundamentally mysterious, mysterious. Why this and why that. Did he not answer about God? I didn't know that. Is there a reference for that? I don't know, but I, I remember that. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about maybe uh, God, if I pick up the pace, uh, as a word for the mystery of, uh, the mystery of um, interconnectedness. Um, so anyway, just for you to know, this is in the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, it's on a discourse called The Removal of Distracting Thoughts. Uh, this is the, it comes after, this is the fifth. It comes after saying if you have such thoughts, you could add a wholesome thought. You should examine the danger in those thoughts, essentially that they result in suffering. That, I don't want to do that. That uh, even if you put in the wholesome, you examine the danger, you still have them, you should try to forget them. This is very interesting because we're talking about um, what is why I called abandoning. We talk about you try to be awake to everything. 
So it sounds peculiar to say forget about it, but really, forget about it. It's not forget about it in denial. Forget about it as a thing that's worthy to think about. Don't think about that. You say, this is a thought that goes nowhere. It, uh, indignation never... The, uh, what was I thinking about? You remember there were all those road movies, the road to Rio, the road to this, the road to that. The road to indignation never ends any place good, is what I'm thinking. <laughs> it just ends in more... Uh, so that if, while you're wholesome, adding, reflecting on the danger, forgetting about and you still have it, then try to still your thought processes so you could see underneath the fundamental thing that's catching you. And if, when you did all those four things, it didn't work and it still arises in you, those unwholesomeness, with teeth clenched together and tongue pressed against the roof of your mouth, you should beat down, constrain, and crush the mind with your mind. This single-mindedness will bring your mind to peace. So this is, this is nothing about gently reflect. This is, but, uh, but the Buddha sat down under that tree and said, I'm not getting up till I'm enlightened. I think that's inspiring. I get excited about that. You know, that I don't have to be a victim of the mind state. There are for me, are there, for whom would, does this resonate with you? I think there are a certain number of top tunes that recycle in my mind, unwholesome top tunes, that this I need to have and this person did me wrong and they shouldn't, and uh, I'm never going to get this work finished on time. I mean, they're just demoralizing, um, self-serving, demoralizing, no, not self-serving, self-defeating, uh, uh, lust thoughts, anger thoughts, uh, delusion thoughts. They're not true. And say, just put them away, put them down. That is right effort. Right concentration will, will do together with right mindfulness because I think it's not true to really designate them as separate. If you can imagine, there are the, there is traditionally in the Vasudhimaga two, um, two paths to freedom. One of them is the path of concentration, the other is the path of mindfulness. They both start the same way. They both start with picking one neutral object and bringing the mind to some amount of composure by bringing its attention, bringing the attention to that neutral object. We do it here most often by seeing, bringing your attention to your breath and your body. Many people come away after years of practice still thinking that mindfulness is about breath and the body. Mindfulness is about paying attention, period. It's about, I love this, I wrote this this week, I think this is good. <laughs> I'm going to test it on you. Do you remember, we sometimes do that uh, meditation, may I meet this moment fully with an undefended heart? I've been using that, I'm practicing with it and seeing how it goes. And I want to talk about why that's... Um, really a definition of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the full and balanced recognition of current experience. Full means knowing what's happening, what's going on in one's external circumstances, in one's body, and in one's mind. By the way, it means two levels of what's going on. It means what's going on, like a breath is going in and a breath is going out, 
and uh, mind is filled with thoughts, mind is empty of thoughts, mind is filled with thoughts of peace, mind is empty, mind is filled with thoughts of anger, mind is empty of thoughts of anger. It means knowing what's here. It means the room is cold this morning. It means uh, it means what's happening and what's happening and what's happening. In the mind, in the body, it means my body, it, my, you know, my shoulder hurts because I slept wrong. It, it means what's happening in the body, what's happening in the mind, what's happening otherwise. It also means on the whole other level of what's happening, if I could see through, that's like the, 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 the uh, um, um, denoting of what's happening, the well, connotative, I'm not sure, but the 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 naming what's happening, which uh, Nyanapanaka, who Nyanapanaka Tara, an old who was the head of the Buddhist Publication Society in Sri Lanka, an old German monk, died probably ten years ago. Uh, had come to Sri Lanka when he was 20, spent his whole life there, died very, very old, talked about mindfulness as tidying the mind. And he said, one of the things it does is it names what's there. This is there, 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 this is there. The point of the tidying is not so that you have a laundry list of what's there, it's that you don't trip over what's there, number one. So if I tidy it, and I see my old views of so-and-so are right there in front of me, blocking any view that I can see. Or my fears about so-and-so are right here, coming back from another time and they don't, they're not appropriately here. If I see what's there clouding my uh, vision, and I'm using that vision in a metaphorical way, if I see what's in my mind, I'm less likely to trip over my mind. The other thing is if I see what's in my mind really and in my body and in my world, I am likely to really intuit what's true about everything that's there. I'm likely through that to be able to see that everything is always changing, that everything is ephemeral, that nothing lasts, that one thing becomes another thing. I'm likely to also see the truth that by holding on to anything or by insisting that things be a certain way, I create suffering in my mind. I'm also likely to see that everything really is interconnected, that everything happens because something happened. This leads to this, leads to this, which produces that. Begin to see that nothing exists alone, that everything exists contingent on everything else that's existing. So that would be what I would see through this, that my paying attention is I can say, this is what's happening, so that I can then say, this is what's true about what's happening. This is why the path of mindfulness leads with increasing clarity to the awareness of what's fundamentally true. So that when the, the, that path is enumerated in the text, it starts with concentration on the breath and the body, but then often it says the meditator, when the mind is uh, completely balanced in, in current experience of breath and body, is then open to just receive all experience. And more and more begins to see the truth of arising and passing away, the truth of contingency, the truth that the mind that holds on to anything or pushes anything is the mind that, that suffers. That you you feel you're not you don't you know it with a capital K is what that 
particular path is, is suggesting that you know it a little bit, and then you know it more, and then you know it more, and then you know it incontrovertibly. That the other path, the path of concentration, where you start the same way, bring my attention to one thing like the breath or the body, or a phrase, may I meet this moment fully with an undefended heart. I'll tell you the rest of this. Full means knowing what's going on. Full balanced recognition of what's going on means without struggle, means without adding or demanding, without adding any demanding or contentious feelings. It means you meet this moment and you just meet it. You know this is what is. It doesn't have to be another way. It's actually without resistance to it. This is what we were, Julian was bringing up about. Resisting is to imagine that it could have been other. To resist it in any way or to be coercive with it in any way is to have forgotten that this moment is the way it is because of the karma of all moments. It couldn't be different. I could change the future of the world by what I do in the next moment. But I have not clouded this moment of recognition with an impulsive response. It's got to be otherwise. It's got to be otherwise. It's able to distinguish that this moment is pleasant or unpleasant, at least for a moment, without being drawn into wanting more or less of it. That's a really important thing. It doesn't mean that every moment appears like oatmeal, just the same as any other. It appears with a certain valence to it. And it appears, along with its appearing, is the appearance is also the appearance in the mind. I wish I didn't have this. But there's difference, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced, there's a difference between knowing fully, I wish I didn't have this, that isn't fighting. Why shouldn't, I, why shouldn't I wish I didn't have it? It's a normal thing when unpleasant experience arises. I wish I didn't have it. Comes up. This is unpleasant. I wish I didn't have it. This is pleasant. I wish I had more. That's exactly the point. That's the point, Julian. To be able to have this and say, uh, we talk about it a lot. Uh, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. It's, just, it's what's happening. It's the karmic unfolding of the moment. It's extremely hard. It's way easier to say it than to do it. Because the mind says, ah, you know, mind says, ah, over much less stuff than big stuff. So imagine. But here, I think, is the major important point. If the mind can stay balanced enough for a moment to know this is what's happening, I like it, I don't like it, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, I wish I had it, I wish I didn't have it, I wish I had more, I wish I had less. And it can do that in a balanced way, without clouding itself with the impulse of response. It allows for the possibility that it will see clearly what are the avenues of response open to me. What can I do? This is a hugely important point when people imagine that mindfulness leads to a kind of passivity about life. I think it actually does the complete opposite. I think it allows for tremendous response to life. You say, oh, this isn't at all right about the world. I have to do something to make a difference about it. Okay, 
this is what I could do, this is what I will do, I can be part of the karma <coughs> of the next moment. I'm aware of two things. I want very much for you to see the, uh, the, the quilt that uh, Elizabeth and uh, Levin have made for uh, this particular uh, program of uh, demonstrating compassionate response. And I wanted them to tell you about it. We won't have time if I don't stop. But I really want, this is a good place to stop anyway, about the point of mindfulness. By the way, one more thing about Nyanapanaka, just to have finished this, that uh, he said that the, 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 uh, uh, the function of mindfulness was to tidy, to be non-coercive. We'll do the other two functions next week, but non-coercive non means this moment is the way it is. I won't fight with it. It is choosing the path of peace. If we could sit, if I could sit in any moment and choose to not be in contention with what's the truth of that moment, that would be a moment of freedom. That would be a moment of peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.